Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Hi and welcome to our next uh, instalment of The Growth as we are looking into the Gospel of John. Um, You'll be able to tell by the backdrop that we have actually moved from a live audience into uh, another setting where I'm speaking just to a camera. I'll do my very best not to be stilted as it is quite difficult just talking to a camera without a live audience. But nevertheless, uh, we're going to have a try and um, pick up where we left off in our last session. Um, We're up to chapter 10 and there is no break, there's no chapter, uh, there shouldn't be a chapter division between the material in chapter 9 and what Jesus begins to talk about in chapter 10. Chapter 10 actually proceeds without any break. Now you'll recall in chapter 9 we ended with the man who had been healed of blindness being excommunicated by the Pharisees. He was permanently excluded from the religious and social life of Israel because he didn't affirm their position that Jesus was a deceiver. The dark backdrop of Jesus's Good Shepherd discourse is the blatant misuse of authority by these Pharisees. Now, sadly, in the life of Israel, there was nothing new about such abuse. Isaiah 56 and verses 9 through 11 read, Come, wild animals of the field, come, tear apart the sheep. Come, wild animals of the forest, devour my people. For the leaders of my people, the Lord's watchmen, his shepherds, are blind to every danger. They are feather-brained and give no warning when danger comes. They love to lie there, love to sleep and dream. They are as greedy as dogs, never satisfied. They are stupid shepherds who only look after their own interests, each trying to get as much as he can for himself from every possible source. Jeremiah the prophet said in chapter 23 verses 1 to 2, I will send disaster upon the leaders of my people, the shepherds of my sheep, for they have destroyed and scattered the very ones they were to care for. Instead of leading my flock to safety, you have deserted them and driven them to destruction. And now I will pour out my judgment upon you for the evil you have done to them. One of the most powerful portions of scripture addressing faithless shepherds is actually found in Ezekiel chapter 34. It's a powerful direct uh, uh, oracle directed against the leaders who had abused their position of authority. And it starts in verse 2 by saying, Prophesy against the shepherds, the leaders of Israel. Say to them, The Lord God says to you, Woe to the shepherds who feed themselves instead of their flocks. Shouldn't the shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the best food and wear the finest clothes, but you let your flocks starve. You haven't taken care of the weak, nor tended the sick, nor bound up the broken bones, nor gone looking for those who have wandered away and are lost. Instead, you've ruled them with force and cruelty. So they were scattered without a shepherd. They have become a prey to every animal that comes along. My sheep wandered uh, uh, through the mountains and hills and over the face of the earth, and there was no one to search for them or care about them. Then, after announcing God's judgment on the false shepherds, Ezekiel's oracles turns to the promises of God, the promise of God to intervene through his ruler, through his Messiah. And verse 11 says, For the Lord God says, I will search and find my sheep. 
I will be like a shepherd looking for his flock. I will find my sheep and rescue them from all the places they were scattered in that dark and cloudy day. And I will bring them back from among the people and the nations where they were, back home to their land of Israel. I will feed them upon the mountains of Israel and by the rivers where their land is fertile and good. Yes, I will give them good pasture. I myself will be the shepherd of the sheep and cause them to lie down in peace. The Lord God says, I will seek my lost ones, those who have strayed and, and bring them safely home again. I will put splints and bandages upon their broken limbs and heal the sick. And I will destroy the powerful fat shepherds. I will feed them. Yes, I will feed them punishment. Now, the Pharisees were, at G in Jesus' time, just the latest representatives of this long and unfortunate tradition of ungodly leadership in Israel. They were harsh with the people, with the, with the sheep. In chapter 8, they uh, wanted a black sheep stoned. In chapter 9, they excommunicate a blind sheep. Now, in chapter 10, Jesus begins speaking to the situation by using a parable or a figure of speech. It's actually the only one found in John's gospel. And he starts by saying, very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The ones who enter the, uh, by the gate uh, is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, or the King James says this parable, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Now, Israel was largely an agrarian society, so this language would have very much resonated with his listeners. Sheep and shepherds were abundant throughout the land, and the theme occurs well over 400 times throughout the scriptures. Many of the Bible's best-known personalities were shepherds. Uh, Abel, Abraham, Moses, Jacob, David. God often depicted his relationship with Israel in terms of shepherd and sheep language. So in Psalm 80 verse 1, he says, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock. And in Psalm 95 verse 7, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. There's a very powerful passage in Isaiah chapter 40 verses 10 and 11, and in that passage, there are five verbs that characterize the work of a good shepherd. So the passage reads, Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. His arm shall rule before him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work is before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with, the, with his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and he will gently lead those who are with young. So the five verbs are firstly, rule. And that speaks of government. Homer, the, the poet, once commented, all kings shepherd their people. Now, some people get quite nostalgic when you talk about the Lord being our shepherd, and they immediately think, of course, of Psalm 23. And while it's, um, you know, 
uh, understandable to, to be somewhat nostalgic about such a beautiful passage. The reality is um, we like the sound of the Lord being our shepherd, but we often rebel against the, re the reality of it. In truth, we don't want to be under anybody's rule. We, in our culture, especially value our autonomy and independence. We think that we're good enough, intelligent enough, and competent enough, and we don't want a ruling shepherd. What we want, actually, is a consultant who's on a retainer, and we can call him when and as needed. But with the Lord as our shepherd, he, in fact, rules. We come under his jurisdiction and under his government. Second thing the shepherd does is that he feeds. You know, the shepherd would seek out new pasture and a source of water for the sheep. Often he would leave the sheep, the flock, in the care of, a, 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 of a, an underling, and he would go out and check out pasture. He would check out um, places where water and food could be found. He would uh, look for noxious weeds. He would check out for marauding animals. He would look for snakes, which could often be found uh, in particular pasture lands. If there was somewhere that was safe, he would then lead his sheep to that place and stand as they grazed. And he would watch over them, keeping them free from marauding animals, from pests. Uh, if he found a place where there was a snake hole, he would take his horn of oil and pour it around the hole of the snake so that the smell of the oil would, dis would um, prevent the snake from actually coming up. They didn't like the smell of it. They didn't like the feel of it. And so they would stay in there in their burrow, as it were. And so the sheep would be protected from them as they were grazing. Um, the shepherd would also keep them from sunstroke. You know, in the Psalm 23, where it says, he anoints my head with oil. The shepherd would literally do that to a sheep on a hot day. He would put oil on their head, preventing them from sunstroke. So the Lord, uh, the shepherd rules, he feeds. Thirdly, he gathers. Sheep, as you know, are prone to wander. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. You know, the sheep have absolutely no sense of direction. A cat or a dog, if lost, would have a good chance of finding its way home, but certainly not a sheep. Some domestic animals, if they are allowed to wander, they will become feral and they will survive in that state, whether it's horses or goats. But there aren't any such thing as, as wild sheep. A wild sheep is called supper. Fourthly, he carries. This speaks of the intimate relationship that the eastern shepherd has with his individual sheep. If they were sick or injured or needy, the shepherd would often carry them for a season until they were strengthened. I've heard stories of eastern shepherds taking a recalcitrant sheep and actually um, carefully but painfully breaking its leg. He would then set a splint and, and uh, carry that sheep while its bones were mending and in that period develop a relationship with the sheep so that it wouldn't wander in times that lie ahead. And one wonders whether the shepherd David was speaking about that in his um, repentance uh, repentance psalm, Psalm 51, where he says, make my, my, the bones which you have broken, could you make them rejoice once again? Maybe he was recalling times when he had to break the leg of uh, a rebellious sheep in order ultimately to transform it and to change it. So the shepherd carries, the shepherd leads. The future well-being of the sheep is absolutely dependent on the shepherd. It's he that takes them to new pasture and water sources. Without his leading, they were lost. 
So these are the things that an Eastern Shepherd did. It was a particularly dangerous occupation. There was harsh weather that they stayed out in. There was primitive lodgings. They battled with wild animals. There were thieves who moved by stealth. There were robbers who were noted for their violence. Eastern shepherds, as I say, were noted for having a very close relationship, an intimate relationship with their sheep. Generally, flocks were much smaller than we would think of when we think of a flock of sheep. Uh, often they would be under a hundred. So the shepherd would know each sheep by, by name. The sheep were taught to recognize and respond and obey the shepherd's voice or his, his pipe. At night, different shepherds would sometimes share a common fold, and all of the sheep would be put in the fold together without the fear that they would get so muddled up that the next morning the shepherds wouldn't be able to work out whose sheep belonged to who. In the morning, the, sheep, the shepherd would simply come out of the fold, walk on his way, and either call to the sheep or play his pipe, and the sheep that belonged to him, recognizing that call or that sound, would simply make their way out and follow him. Now, in verses 17 to 18 of chapter 10, Jesus applies this parable, this figure of speech, to himself. One of the things that he says, he says it twice in verse 7 and verse 9, is, I am the door. Now, this is the third time in the Gospel of John we have the I am statement with the predicate. Up, up until now, we've had two. Uh, it's I am the bread of life in chapter 6, and I am the light of the world in chapter 8. Here, Jesus says, I am the door. Now, eastern shepherds, as I mentioned before, would often shelter their sheep in a fold. Now, a fold often would be just simply a wall of stones, uh, perhaps topped with briars or thorns to, to try and stop animals getting over the top, or, or thieves or, or robbers. Uh, that sort of enclosure had no door, just an opening that would allow the sheep entry and exit. But what would happen is, at night, the shepherd would lie across the opening actually functioning and acting as a door, hence the I am the door comment. Jesus is the door to salvation. He was later to say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come in and get to the Father except by me. And in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, where the scripture says, heaven can be only entered through a narrow door or a narrow gate. So Jesus is saying, I am that door. If you're going to get to my sheep, you're going to have to get over my dead body. In chapter 11, and, and sorry, in verses 11 and 14, we have the fourth great I am followed by the predicate, where Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. Literally, that says, I am the shepherd, the good one. And the clear implication of that, and given the context, is there are some bad ones. In verses 12 and 13, he calls those bad ones hirelings. These are different from the shepherd. They were hired hands. They had no real interest in the care of the sheep beyond their pay packet. They would labor until the pain or the risk exceeded the quantity of that pay packet. And when and if it did, they simply would leave the sheep uh, to fend for themselves. The good shepherd, by contrast, would defend the sheep even at the cost of his own life. Now, as a good shepherd, Jesus offers his sheep, and you can see it through this chapter, first of all, security. And, and we've 
looked at that concept uh, already when he says, I am the door. If you're going to get to these sheep, you have to go through me. In verse 28 of the chapter, he says, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them away from me. So the first thing Jesus offers his sheep is security. The second thing he offers them is intimacy. In verse 14 and 15, he says, I'm the good shepherd and known by my own sheep. They know me just as my father knows me and I know the father. Now that word known we've encountered before in John's gospel, it's used numerous times and it indicates a profound union and not merely intellectual awareness. It's exactly the same word that's used by Mary when she says to the angel in Luke chapter 1 verse 35, how can I be pregnant? I have never known a man. It's a word that's used to describe the deepest intimacy between husband and wife. And Jesus is saying, I have that kind of intimacy with my sheep. So there's security, there's intimacy. Thirdly, he says, I communicate with my sheep. So there's communication. In verse 3, verse 16, and verse 27 of this chapter, he says, my sheep hear my voice. Jesus wants a relationship with us that's communicative. He wants us to speak to him, and he wants to share his heart with us. Fourthly, there's nurture. In verse 9, I will find pasture for them. I'll feed them. One of the things the shepherd does is he feeds his sheep. Of course, Psalm 23 talks about that. Pastures and, and quiet waters. The Lord wants to nourish us and feed us as our, as, as our good shepherd. Now, the result of this discourse, of course, is, um, is a divided response. We've seen that again and again through John's gospel. As Jesus is speaking, some said, others said. And we see that in verses 19 through verse 21. There's a divided response. Many said, others said. That continues the theme, the ongoing theme of John of acceptance on the one hand, rejection on the other, light and darkness, belief and unbelief. Now, verse 22 of this chapter introduces us to another feast. It's called the Feast of Dedication. Now, you might not be familiar with this one uh, so much as perhaps if Passover and, and Pentecost and Tabernacles. Perhaps the reason for that is it's actually a feast that is not authorized by the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. It was a later edition. In 167 BC, a Syrian by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes overran Jerusalem and polluted the temple, and he set up a pagan altar to displace the altar of Israel's God. He outlawed the possession of the Torah, uh, Sabbath keeping and circumcision, and thought, uh, and he sought to thoroughly Hellenize the the Jewish people. He wanted to make them Grecian. They chafed under that brutal repression, as might be expected, and many Jews revolted and perfected in that time the art of what we today would call guerrilla warfare. Eventually, the Jewish army grew strong enough to overthrow the oppressor and under the leadership of a man called Judas Maccabees they recaptured the temple and reconsecrated it in 164 BC. As a result there was incredible joy and for eight days the people celebrated and they decided that this celebration should be held each year from then on and it was that that was called the Feast of Dedication. So in this season, the Feast of Dedication, verse 24, it says that the Jews demanded that Jesus tell 
them whether or not he was the Christ. Now, one wonders about that question because given all the evidence that he has supplied up to this point, the very clear statements that he has made, the works that he have done, it's relatively safe to say that the Jews were not, in fact, seeking clarity in order to commit themselves to Jesus, but simply were wanting an unambiguous statement that would provide adequate basis for their accusations and an attack. They weren't really asking a question. Jesus accepts that it is a question and he claims that he's already done it. In verse 25, he says, look at the works that I've done among you. Now, remember in John chapter 5, Jesus said one of the things that testify concerning me are the works that I do. He says that again later in John chapter 14, verse 11, where he says, believe me that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe me on account of the works themselves. If you can't believe what I'm saying, look at the works that I'm doing. Are they sufficient to say, yes, that's an exegesis of the Father's heart or not? Jesus goes on in verse 30 and says, I and the Father are one. And in essence, he's saying, read my lips, read my lips. They don't believe him, but they do understand him. In verse 31 through 33 in the message translation, it says, again, the Jews picked up rocks to throw at him. Jesus said, I have made a present to you from the father of a great many good actions. For which of these acts do you stone me? The Jews said, we're not stoning you for any good you did, but for what you said. This is blasphemy. You are calling yourself God. As I say, they didn't believe him, but they did understand him. And their natural response in that time was to stone the blasphemer. As I've said to you before, this is not Jesus, a human, making himself God. This is God already made human. This isn't a human teaching about God. This is God teaching human beings. And again, we see this powerful theme of belief and unbelief as it continues its parallel development. Verse 39, rejection and unbelief. Verses 41 to 42, acceptance and belief. That brings us then to chapter 11 of John's Gospel. Um, this chapter centers around the raising of Lazarus from the dead. It is the climactic and most momentous miracle in John's Gospel. Up until this point, we've seen Jesus as master over quality when he turns the water into wine in John chapter 2. We've seen him master over distance or space, healing the nobleman's son from a distance of 32 kilometers. We've seen him master over time as he heals the impotent man who'd been sick for 38 years. We've seen him master over quantity as he feeds the 5,000 in John chapter 6. We've seen him master of natural law as he walks on water in John chapter 6 also, and we've seen him as master over mis misfortune, the healing of the blind man, the man born blind in John chapter 9. Here in chapter 11, we see Jesus as master over death, as he raises Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. 
This incident takes place only two months out from Jesus' own death. Surprisingly, it isn't mentioned by the Synoptic Gospels. As striking a miracle as it is, Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't mention it. Now, they do mention Jesus raising people from the dead, and they give two examples of it, the daughter of Jairus in Matthew chapter 9 and the widow of Nain in uh, Luke chapter 7 verse 11. Perhaps they thought there was no need to uh, add, add to those instances. The raising of Lazarus, though, is perhaps the most staggering case of Jesus raising people from the dead. The, the daughter of Jairus had only just died when Jesus raised her. The widow of Nain's son had not been buried. They were People were often buried in that culture and still are on the on the day that they died. So in both the daughter of Jairus' case and the widow of Nain's son, it's likely that Jesus raised them from the dead on the same day that they had died. Lazarus, however, has been dead for four days. And as Martha so pointedly pointed out, decomposition had begun to set in. Now, the chapter 11 is divided into four movements. The first is verses 1 through 16, where, the report, where we have the report of Lazarus's illness and death. Then in verses 17 through 37, we have Jesus's arrival at the village of Bethany. Verses 38 to 44, we have the miracle itself. And then in verses 45 to 57, we have the result or the fallout of the miracle. So verses 1 through 3, uh, the chapter opens with Jesus with uh, trouble happening in the village of Bethany. It says, A man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the same Mary who massaged the Lord's feet with aromatic oils and then wiped them with her hair. It was her brother, Lazarus, who was sick. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Master, the one you love so very much is sick. <clears throat> now, clearly Jesus wasn't there. He often was, however, at this household and seemed to have a very special place in his heart and affections for this family. We read of him being there in Luke chapter 10, verse 38, which is, of course, the famous story of Martha busily serving in the kitchen and Mary sitting at the master's feet. In a really little, uh, an interesting little twist, Luke describes, and Luke 10, describes the house as belonging to Martha, while John describes the village, Bethany, as Mary's town. I don't know whether that means a whole lot, except that G. Campbell Morgan picks up on that point and made an interesting statement. He said, A good woman may own a house and run it and herself to death, while another sort of woman will hold a complete village by her love and ministry. Martha's house, Mary's village. Now, Jesus clearly loved this family dearly and enjoyed being there. And I think that shows something of his humanity. While John fully ex exegetes Jesus's divinity, there are also these wonderful aspects that illustrate his humanity. He loved the whole world, and yet there were places and people with whom he had a more intimate relationship. Perhaps that says more about them than it does about Jesus. They warmly welcomed him, and Jesus delighted in that welcome. Now, one of this family, Lazarus, his uh, Hebrew name is Eleazar, which means he whom God has helped. Lazarus falls ill. 
In verse 4, when Jesus heard this, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified in it. That's almost an exact repetition of what he said in John chapter 9 about the blind man. <clears throat> and I commented when we considered that passage, uh, but it's, it's worth repeating, that this isn't a suggestion that somehow these events were sovereignly ordered. Rather simply, they provide a sovereign opportunity. God didn't cause the man to be blind or Lazarus to fall sick. Things like that happen in a fallen and broken world. The notion that God intended that they suffer, one man since birth and Lazarus and his family, to endure the illness and grief so that Jesus could show up and show off, are simply, to me at least, abhorrent. Verses in 5 and 6 seem something like a contradiction in terms. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, so when he heard that he was sick, he remained there uh, where he was for two more days. Now, surely you would expect that to read, Jesus loved them, so as soon as he heard about Lazarus being sick, he left immediately for Bethany. Perhaps one wonders why didn't he simply speak a word as he'd done in the case of the nobleman's son. He's the master of distance and space. If you look at the chronology of this chapter, it seems that Lazarus was probably well and truly dead by the time the message actually reached Jesus. The distance between Bethany and where Jesus was was one day's journey. He delayed for two days, then he took one day to walk back to Bethany, and when he arrived, Martha says he's been dead for four days. If you look at the chronology, it looks like Lazarus had probably died sometime between the message having been sent and the message arriving at Jesus. On the fourth day, Hope had died. There was a Jewish belief that the soul of the departed person would stay around the body for three or four days, hoping to be reunited to the body. It was on the fourth day that the soul would depart from the body. So the fourth day effectively (coughs) meant that all hope had gone. Jesus heard the news of Lazarus' illness. Perhaps he knew that Lazarus had in fact died and he delayed. That delay is clearly not motivated by indifference, as John is at pains to point out that Jesus loved this family dearly. The delay, motivated by love, sets the scene for an even greater miracle. You know, all of us, I suspect, are aware of the fact that God's timing invariably seems to differ from our own in all sorts of matters. I think Oftentimes we are tempted to interpret the delay in terms of his indifference. But Zephaniah chapter 3 verse 17 says he will rest in his love, or the margin of my Bible says in his love he will be silent. Motivated by love, sometimes Jesus waits. Parents who give their children everything they ask for for when they ask for it actually don't love their children, they love themselves. Parents who truly love are aware that there are times, often many times, where they need to wait in terms of the best interests of the child. I think the disciples were probably profoundly grateful for that delay. They actually had no desire whatsoever to go back to Judea and to Jerusalem. Last time they they were there, there was a deliberate attempt to kill him. You can see that in verse 31 of chapter 10. 
After two days had passed, Jesus announced that they needed to go back to Judea. You see that in verse 7. The disciples predictably respond in verse 8, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried, uh, the Jews there tried to stone you, and, and, and yet you are going back? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for they see by this world's light. It is when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. Now, according to G. Campbell Morgan, that could be paraphrased. I am certainly going back to Judea. You need, you need have no fear. There will be no stumbling. There will be no accident. Hostility cannot touch me until my hour has arrived. I am walking in the light and not in the darkness. I think Jesus knew that as long as he walked in God's revealed purpose, no plot would shorten his appointed 12 hours. I don't think that's fatalism, and I don't think that should make us foolhardy. Jesus is effectively saying that this depended, this safety depended on walking in the light. If you're foolhardy and walk in the dark, then I suspect time can be shortened. Um, D.A. Carson in his commentary on John said, these verses metaphorically insist that Jesus is safe as long as he is performing his Father's will. So Jesus says, we'll be okay. And in verse 11, it's, he says, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Now in scripture, the, the, uh, the death of believers is often compared to and described in terms of sleep. In Genesis 47 and verse 30, Jacob said, when I sleep with my fathers. And in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you sleep with your fathers. Biblical language describing death as sleep is not, a, I think, a trite evasion of the facts. You know, over the years I've been involved in many, many funerals and there's often rhetoric that goes on that really doesn't amount to that really does amount to an evasion of the unwelcome fact of death and you hear people saying they've gone to a better place they're finally at rest they're at peace and they're happy and in some cases hopefully at least anyway that's an accurate description but often when there's no faith involved in the deceased it really does amount to whistling in the dark there's no basis to it in fact one could go further and say it's misguided even deceptive thinking. It amounts to when you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are. It's, it's simply fantasy land. However, for believers, it's none of those things. To speak of a believer falling asleep isn't an evasion of the facts, but it's an acknowledgement of the ultimate fact that there is a resurrection and that Jesus is in fact master over death. The disciples, as they were wont so often to do, misunderstood. And in verse 12 and 13, they say, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. If he's asleep, then his fever has obviously broken and, and he will be okay. So Jesus is plain. In verse 14 and 15, he basically says, Lazarus is dead. And he says, I'm glad I wasn't there because this will provide another opportunity to develop your belief in me. Let's go to him. In verse 16, Thomas, the one famous for his doubting, answers, well, let's go and die with him. Now, in saying this, he's not saying let's go and die with Lazarus. He's saying last time Jesus was there, he nearly got killed. This time he probably will be. Let's go and die with him. Lazarus is somewhat of a doubter in much of what happens in the scriptures, and I, and I wonder that if he was ever cast in, as an actor in a Pooh Bear movie, he would without doubt be Eeyore. 
there's a dogged loyalty in uh, in pessimists at times, and and. Thomas is effectively saying if he's dis- determined to add one more corpse to another, we might as go with him, might as well go with him and add ours to the pile. So they make their way to Bethany. In verses 17 to 37, Jesus arrives at Bethany and here he meets the two sisters. Mary comes out. Mary, the activist, r- arrives first on the scene. And she violates convention, actually, which demanded that those grieving for their loved ones should remain in the seclusion of, of their house for at least seven-day period. She violates that convention on hearing that Jesus was coming and rushes out to him. Mary, the contemplative, she comes second. It's interesting, as you read this, both of the sisters say exactly the same words to Jesus. Verse 21, Martha. Verse 32, Mary. And they say, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Apart from the same words, everything about them is different. And and actually, they represent very accurately two completely different responses to bereavement. There are those who talk and talk and talk and talk, and Martha does exactly that. There are those who simply weep, and Mary was tearful. To Martha, Jesus talked a lot. To Mary, he says little, but weeps with her. And I think that provides a profound lesson on comforting the bereaved. Often, you know, in dealing with these sisters, we tend to put Martha down in favour of Mary. As I read this story, however, it seems to me like Martha has the more vigorous faith. Mary says, if you'd been here, and stops. Martha says the same, but adds, even now I know whatever you ask from God, God will give you, in verse 22. It's almost like she's hoping against hope, not wanting to be presumptuous, but You know, like Jesus, I know you have raised the dead before. And in the dialogue, it seems like Jesus is tentatively trying to draw out her her tentative faith. And in verse 23, he says, Martha, your brother will rise again. Clearly, as you look at this, Martha is vacillating. Her her faith is a bit like that smoldering flax that Jesus talked about on another occasion in Matthew 12 and verse 20. And he is not going to allow it to be quenched. Martha is confident that if Jesus had been here in the past, everything would be well. She also knows that in the future, there'll be a resurrection. It's the present moment for Martha that is the problem. Once I heard a preacher speaking about Jesus being crucified between two thieves, and he suggested that one was called the past and the other was called the future. He suggested this because he said, Those two thieves rob us of faith in the present. Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am now, always, whenever the resurrection and the life. And in Jesus, we have the future brought into the present. This is the fifth of his great I am statements. He said, I am the bread of life in chapter 6. I am the light of the world in chapter 8. I am the gate in chapter 7. I'm the good shepherd in chapter 10. Sorry, I am the gate in chapter 10. I am the good shepherd in chapter 10. I am the resurrection and the life here in chapter 11. And then he says, do you believe this, Martha? In verse 26. 
Now, for all her apparent faults, Martha responds magnificently. And this response is on equal footing to Peter's response in Matthew 16, when Jesus said, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ. Here, Martha equals that saying, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who has come into the world. At that point, Martha breaks from Jesus' company, rushes back to get Mary. In verse 28 and through 32, she gets Mary and uh, and brings her back. One, comment, one commentator com- commented that to Martha, Jesus showed his divinity. To Mary, he shows his humanity. In verse 33, when Jesus sees Mary and the others weeping, it says, first of all, he groaned in spirit. That word groaned is used again in verse 38. It's the same word in the Greek. It's the Greek word embrimaomai. And it's an interesting word that's used in the Greek language to describe the snorting of a horse. It's, it's, it indicates one who is moved by profound indignation, one who is angry. And in that moment, in the presence of death, all the wrath of God surged through Jesus in the presence of human misery, resulting from sin and issuing in death and the breaking of hearts. He's indignant at the ruination of his good creation. He is the creator looking on and groaning over his beloved creature man. He's indignant at what Satan and death has done. In verse 35, it says he wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, of course. He uh, uses, or John uses here, a different Greek word, bakrao. And it simply means he shed tears. He shed the human experience of personal grief over the death of a dear friend. In verse 38, he says to the people, roll away the stone. I'm fascinated here. He invites a pass, a, a, our partnership in a miracle, and he, he always seems to do that. He didn't need our partnership. Uh, he could have simply spoken to the stone in the same way that he spoke to the waves. He could have got an angel to roll it away. A couple of weeks later, an angel will roll away, uh, roll away the stone that's over his own tomb. But it seems that God has designed us and created us in a way that he seeks partnership with us, and particularly as it relates to the miraculous. He extends to man the privilege and dignity of agency, of co-agency, of working with him. And we see this where to the lame man, Jesus says, take up your bed and walk. To the blind man, he says, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. To Peter, when Peter says, can I walk on the water? He says, yeah, start, come, walk. But Lord, Martha says, the sister of the dead man says, by this time there's a bad odour, for he's been dead for four days. And it's this point, Martha's tender faith, knowing that God had raised, that Jesus had raised the dead in the past and knowing that he would at the future, but she collapses in the present and gives way completely. All her logic and all her experience swamps what little faith remains. She believes God in general, but not in particular. She believes that God has acted in the past and will act in the future, but can't in the present. In verses 41 and 44, Jesus speaks to two people. He prays to God in heaven, and he calls a man out of Hades. He lifts his voice after the stone has been rolled away and says, Lazarus, come out. 
St. Augustine once very amusingly quipped, it's just as well that Jesus says Lazarus before the command to come out, because if he hadn't said Lazarus come out, then the whole of Hades would have come forth. And, you know, there will be a day in the future when all of the dead will hear that come forth and will come. John chapter 5, verse 28, 29 says, Marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in which all they that are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. As Jesus watched, Lazarus came out of that tomb. Now, I think in that moment, Jesus knew that that act would, in actual fact, precipitate his own death, his own crucifixion, and result in his own entombment in just a few short weeks. In a very real sense, he gave Lazarus life at the cost of his own. And we see this in what follows. The results of the miracle are recorded in verses 45 through 53. It says, Therefore many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. Remember the theme, belief, unbelief, light, darkness, acceptance, rejection. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You all know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that whole of the nation perish. And John adds, he did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation, and not only for that nation, but for all the scattered children of God, to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. Some believed, it says, and to be honest, you have to say, in the presence of such an incredible miracle, it would take a studied effort not to. But some went off to the Pharisees to tell on Jesus. I think this is what happened, uh, or, or what happened here is what Jesus spoke of in one of his stories where he had Abraham say to the rich man in Hades, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one is, is raised from the dead. You know, the religious leaders are alarmed. Jesus is presenting a very real challenge to them, to their titles and their turf. They had long ago become much more interested about self-preservation than anything new that God might happen to be doing. They were motivated by territorial spirits and in doing so had become subject to those same territorial spirits. Their great concern was we'll, leave our, we'll lose our place, we'll lose our temple, we'll lose our nation. They became, in essence, a perfect illustration of Jesus' words, those who seek to save their lives shall lose them, those who are willing to lose them will save them. The very thing that these men tried to save, the temple, their city, their nation, was lost in AD 70 when Titus and his Roman hordes invaded Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. In verse 54, right at the end of this chapter, it says, Jesus withdrew. Although he was confident his father would keep him until that hour, he also cooperated with his father's plan to do so. To stay would be to precipitate perhaps an early uh, arrival of his hour, and Jesus was not willing that that would happen. Though he knew that if he walked in the light he would be safe, he also took responsibility for his actions and removed himself from the scene of difficulty. 
And that brings us to chapter 12. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.